You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Everything I eat has been proved by some doctor or other to be a deadly poison. And everything I don't eat has been proved to be indispensable for life. But I go marching on. George Bernard Shaw. But this is how it is for children with eosinophilic esophagitis. Join me at the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Mark Rothenberg. Dr. Rothenberg is a professor of pediatrics and director of the Division of Allergy and Immunology at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center and the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. He is an acknowledged expert on the molecular mechanisms of allergic diseases and disorders and was the recipient of the 2007 E.B. Johnson Award from the Society for Pediatric Research. Today we are discussing the treatment of eosinophilic esophagitis. Welcome, Dr. Rothenberg, and thank you for joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable. Pleasure to be here, Bill. In a nutshell, just to start and bring our listeners up to date, could you give an intro, a brief introduction to eosinophilic esophagitis? Eosinophilic esophagitis is an allergic disease associated with swelling and inflammation of the esophagus, causing dysfunction of this. When and why would you start treatment? Treatment for this disorder is primarily based on the diagnosis and the clinical symptoms. If someone is diagnosed with this particular disease and they're suffering from it, we recommend avid, effective treatment. Is endoscopy the sine qua non diagnostic criteria for eosinophilic esophagitis? Actually, endoscopy is required, but it goes a little bit further than that because you need to have an endoscopy with biopsy and then you need to have the biopsy reviewed by a pathologist that understands how to diagnose this disease because it's a microscopic diagnosis, and it depends upon the physical and manual observation of the tissue under the microscope. Is there a minimum number of biopsy sites that are necessary so that if this is done, say, in community hospitals or outside of centers such as yours, that people do it right the first time? Well, we recommend multiple biopsies from both the proximal, the upper, and distal, the lower esophagus. And we're talking generally about two to three biopsies from each of those particular sites. The diagnosis, however, requires any biopsy having a certain level of eosinophils. So in theory, you only need one biopsy demonstrating the classic features, but it increased the sensitivity of the finding because this is a patchy, spotty disease. This is the recommendation. What number of eosinophils per high-power field do you use as criteria? The criteria for this disease is dependent upon a combination of both the pathology, which we define this disease as being highly suspicious, the level of 15 eosinophils in a high-power field, at least that in one field. We call that the peak eosinophil count. And that should be generally after the gastroesophageal reflux has been eliminated in terms of the cause of the esophagitis. Would that be through a pH monitoring or more not seeing the findings of GERD on the uh, esophageal mucosa? GERD is typically ruled out by the failure of GERD therapy, typically proton pump inhibitors, to ameliorate the clinical symptoms and the histology. So we typically are looking for patients that have greater than 15 eosinophils per peak high power field while they are on a proton pump inhibitor. I understand, as compared with idiopathic hyper syndrome, that in EE, 
there is no end organ damage, such as cardiac anomalies that occur. What is the morbidity of not treating? The morbidity of not treating is potentially, although this isn't necessarily true in all patients and we don't have long-term natural history studies, so I qualify my answer, but we have evidence to believe that the morbidity of this disease is primarily associated with the chronic scarring and dysfunction of the esophagus. We certainly know that this disease is associated with fibrosis, which is remodeling and scarring of the esophagus, and this can result in not uncommonly in stricture which is a narrowing of the esophagus. Again, in the hyperosinophilic syndrome, other criteria they use for beginning treatment, especially in the absence of end organ damage, is the absolute number of eosinophils. I've read 15 to 2,000 per cubic millimeter. Does that play a factor in children as to when you would start treatment? For the hyperosinophilic syndrome or for EE, Bill? For EE. Not really. I mean, for EE, we generally, in our center, which is a focused area of of research and clinical studies on this particular disease, and we are a tertiary care consulting service and center, we are aggressive about treating our patients because our patients have been around the map, around the globe, followed by other doctors, and they end up in our center. By the time they end up there, we end up treating them when we make these diagnoses. So as my son, the lawyer, would say, we have concluded that biopsy diagnostic criteria for EE leads to treatment. At our center in Cincinnati, yes. And that's the general recommendation would be as long as the patients are clinically symptomatic, most people would not argue with with treating them. And then your initial treatment would be? Initial treatment is related to our observation of this disease is an allergen-driven disease. In other words, the things you're exposed to, particularly in your diet, are actually causing the inflammation in the esophagus. So the first treatment is focused on identifying what the culprits may be, particularly identifying the allergens. Then second, removing those culprits from the diet or the exposure through the respiratory tract. We think it's aeroallergen-driven. And that can be by specifically eliminating the questioned food, let's say milk or peanut or soy or corn. One of the more dramatic and effective ways of doing that is to have the patient start what we call an elemental diet, which is essentially a diet that's free of proteins. It's an amino acid-based formula diet. It's a liquid diet that is completely allergen-free, and this will result in a very remarkable improvement in this particular problem. If those dietary approaches don't work, removing the allergens, then we opt for medical therapy. Medical therapy is usually focused on anti-inflammatory agents, whether it be glucocorticoids or other anti-inflammatory agents, and those can be delivered through the mouth or topically by having the patient take various formulations that we're researching. You mentioned identifying the food allergens. How is that done? Food allergen identification is primarily performed by skin testing. Referral to an allergist that understands these particular problems and then the evaluation for sensitization to these foods through performance of skin testing. The skin testing is typically done with the classic allergy testing, which we call prick testing, which measures the acute allergic reaction in the skin. A question about that from some of the allergy training I've picked up along the way and practicing pediatrics. Years ago, there was a big issue where children who spit up a little were skin-tested to 20 or 30 things, put on these bread-and-water, lamb-rice diets, ate nothing, failed to thrive. 
And over the years, it's evolved that you can use a skin test to suggest a food allergy, but you've got to prove it. And, of course, the proving, ideally in an academic center, I guess, would be a double-blind, placebo-controlled trial. Have you gone that far? And how do you know that all the things that they test positive for are truly inciting allergens? Well, Bill, like usual, you ask some very good questions. And this is one of the reasons your question is complex, and I would encourage the listeners to this interesting and important show to realize that this disease and treatment and evaluation involves going to specialists that fully understand this. So you need to go to people that actually have experience and and can actually determine the difference between what you are referring to, which is really a false positive result, and even false negatives where we fail to identify possible culprits. But the bottom line in terms of that as an expert in the area is that double-blind placebo-controlled challenges are very useful for acute allergic reactions to a particular food. And that's really the gold standard for the identification of something like peanut or milk anaphylaxis. In this particular disease, we have a chronic inflammation. So the double-blind challenge isn't really going to be useful in a clinical setting. However, we can take um, a somewhat converse approach, which is to induce a remission in this particular disease with an elemental diet. And that's usually effective in the majority of individuals. And when we talk about remission in this disease, one of the gratifying points from the doctor's point of view and from the patient's point of view is that we can achieve 100% remission. So we can get complete normal patient's normalcy if we have effective treatment. Once we achieve that remission, then we can start to reintroduce the foods one at a time. And that's usually when we can begin to become very secure and we can confirm and become convinced that that particular food is driving the process because as we introduce that food one at a time, the disease will flare up again. That's when we can definitively identify the relationship and the cause. Again, short of going through or putting the patient through an endoscopy, are there other ways that you monitor success to treatment? Is there anything else they can measure, such as a eosinophil count, perhaps products of activated eosinophils, such as tryptase, anything else that you found useful short of endoscopy? Uh, there's really nothing yet that we've identified. We are in search of that through our research where we're looking heavily for these biomarkers that can be used to give us a feel for the level of the disease and the activity of it without doing the invasive endoscopy. If A and B, elimination and steroids, fail, what would your next step be? The next step after diet and anti-inflammatory therapies is usually more anti-inflammatory therapy with other off-label indications of other drugs that are approved for other particular problems. But, Bill, we're also heavily involved in research, and we are doing clinical trials in a number of different approaches, and we're very optimistic about our early results, which have been published in top journals, that biologics, which are new ways of treating diseases through protein-based therapy, may be very effective at treating this particular problem. Are there any controversies in the treatment of EE? or things that physicians and patients should avoid that have been proven ineffective? The controversies are uh, how aggressively to treat, especially when you begin to get into the side effects of the medication. The second controversy related to the first is really what is the natural history. And that natural history question is going to become very important because that's going to tell us how to gauge whether or not to treat patients, especially the ones that are refractory to the initial approaches. 
The third thing that's somewhat controversial, you know, but I would say the most exciting area is what is the actual cause on a molecular level of this particular disease? We have identified particular genes that predispose the disease. We know that this disease runs in families, that if you have one sibling with it, the risk for the other sibling is, is over 50-fold higher than the general population. And uh, we need to understand more about that so we can actually figure out how to develop the proper treatment. Well, time has just gone by so quickly. I would like to thank Dr. Mark Rothenberg, who has been our guest, and we have been discussing the treatment of eosinophilic esophagitis. I am Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. I wish you good day and good health.